You're listening to the Global Ooj Podcast, where every week we learn about the world through the eyes of entrepreneurship. With your host, Ujwal Velagapudi. Can you remember the very first entrepreneurial venture that you had? I think mine was in second grade where I was creating these little arts and craft items to hold pencils and erasers. I was selling them to kids in my class for about five and ten cents. Annika Vandenbroek definitely started pretty early in the world of entrepreneurship when she started breeding and selling mice to her local pet store for 40 cents each. At the age of six, she went on to have a successful corporate career, earned her MBA, but ultimately knew she wanted to start her own business. She takes us through how a little vacation and an idea on the back of a napkin had started the journey to building the largest privately held pet care brand in Australia with a global presence in nine countries. She's been recognized as one of Australia's 50 most influential women entrepreneurs among many other awards. But ultimately, she is an advocate for pet welfare and animal rights, having contributed to saving the lives of over 30,000 dogs. Annika, welcome to the Global Ouge podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Before we jump into mm-hmm. the success of Rufus and Coco and uh, the first salon, your latest business, I want to have you walk us through kind of your personal background of where you grew up and what, if anything, had actually inspired your entrepreneurial journey. Oh, yeah, sure. So I am an Australian. I live in Sydney and um, I've always lived in Australia, although I travel a lot now for work. And, you know, growing up, um, I grew up in this sort of household that if the dog got to the couch before you did, you lost your spot. And uh, it's not surprising that, um, that, you know, that love of animals and has been just something I absolutely grew up with. I've owned over 50 pets in my life um, and and I've loved everything from, you know, reptiles to dogs, cats, uh, a chicken that turned into a rooster. And my first entrepreneurial endeavour was actually at the age of five, selling mice to the local pet store for 40 cents a pop. And, um, and basically I decided that my mice were much more beautiful than the mice that they sold. And so... That was my first um, endeavor into running my own business uh, and, and you know, a good lesson in biology because, in fact, the male mice eat the babies. Um, so I lost a bit of stock in the early days figuring that out. Um, so fast forward ahead, I think, past a corporate career in sales and marketing um, in some of Australia's largest branded businesses. I uh, always wanted to own my own business and I felt it was time to make a break. And that's um, when I started Rufus and Coco over 12 years ago uh, with a baby on my hip. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. As far as Rufus and Coco, when you had started that, what was that, I guess, moment where you realized this is a business that I want to start? It's not just a personal hobby. It's not just a passion, but it's actually a business. And was there like an aha moment where it was, yes, I'm all in, I'm going full front um, into this or was it kind of a, all right, let's see, let's start selling a few products. Let's see if this works from a side hobby to, you know, the next step in progressions, or was it just all in, I'm going into this? You know, I had a range of 
I had a like a range of business ideas and um, I got made redundant from one of my senior exec roles and I do what any good person does at that time and that is go to Bali with a girlfriend and drink some cocktails and figure out what you're going to do with your next steps. And so I had many, many ideas and um, I remember my girlfriend Ginny leaning over to me and she said, well, Annika, which one are you going to do? And, and I said, oh, this one. And on the back of the cocktail envelope, I wrote out our business strategy for, for then an unnamed um, brand. And she said, well, why do you want to pick that one? And I said, this is the one I actually care about. And I just feel that um, I truly believe that pets are good for humans. Um, pets are good for our physical and our mental well-being. Having owned all those pets in my lifetime, I really believed that there was a gap in the market that was not being um, served and that was for more natural, affordable, fashionable products um, for pet owners that made keeping pets easy. Um, so I became very clear that that's actually what I was um, going to do. Um, so I did throw myself into it. Um, certainly when I started, um, and on the back of that envelope, um, napkin rather, it talks about being an Australasian brand and what's actually happened over the many years in business is that, you know, we've lifted our sights from being Australasian to being a global brand. And yeah, I definitely relate about going to take a trip to kind of clear the mind and understand which direction to go in. Uh, just curious, what were the other businesses that you didn't pick and that you weren't as passionate about? Uh, interesting, uh, Lee. Um, one of them, because a lot of my background's been in fashion and beauty and health, um, one of them was about um, creating larger sized fashion. Um, I really believe there was a gap in the market for high trend product. And um, so that was, that was one of them. One of the other ones was actually creating, um, when you went to the local zoo, which I was at all the time, you know, just simple things like using technology for interpretation to like services where you could get it, you know, information on the animals interpreted in several different languages, that type of thing. I mean, it was very um, basic, but there was some quite cool technology around at the time that I felt that um, would enable people to experience greater enjoyment at the zoo and in a range of other um, sort of, I suppose, being in Australia, you know, we we are a very multicultural country, but that but the the presenting language is always English. And um, so I think for all the visitors that we get from Asia, it's very limited in terms of them trying to experience what really is an incredible country. That was one of them. Um, and so, sort of, so the list goes on really. And one word that you had mentioned before, you said we've gone just from Australia to other countries, right? Shortly thereafter. And you said Australasia, was that, is that correct? Australasia is where we where certainly was my vision at the time when I started. Okay. And um, I, I've just never heard of that word. Could you, uh, what exactly does that mean from, um, from a market standpoint and regions? Yeah, so basically Australia plus across Asia. Um, so Australasia, so Australia and, and Asia. So, you know, moving into, um, I mean, now we sell in Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, um, you know, so... I mean, that would extend to parts of China, Korea, uh, Taiwan, um, those types of countries. Are the logistics, uh, just geographically where Australia is, when you decided to expand and or when you had that thought to go to Australasia, 
logistically, was that the most opportune place versus, let's say, uh, Europe and Africa or North America? You know, I think it was because I had had experience in those markets and previous businesses I'd worked in, and therefore I felt that I could, I knew a bit about the markets and the cultures and selling product into those markets and the um, and the diversity of retailers in those markets. So it was probably just based on where I'd had experience, whereas at the time, the idea of going to America was, um, you know, uh, an idea that was kind of unfathomable. I mean, where would I even start? Um, however, ironically, now we sell into nine countries, um, including North America. And, you know, it is something that we obviously figured out. Um, and, and yeah, so we now we sell about, we, we sell into about 4,300 doors um, around the globe. That's amazing. And in Australia, you're one of the or the most successful privately held pet care business out there. And so right now, do you do any of the manufacturing yourself is, um, or if not, are any elements within your business vertically integrated? Uh, no, we're very, um, what we are very passionate about is holding the design and the ideation. And so nothing that we buy is actually out of an Australian, out of a Chinese or even an Australian sort of catalogue, if you like. Um, it's all something that we create and we work hard to make sure it's solving the needs. It has strong points of differentiation to what's in the market and it needs to outperform what's in the market before we'll actually launch it. Um, so what we don't do is just provide rafts and rafts of products and brushes and everything else that's the same as what everyone's doing. And look, a good example of that is our Wee Kitty um, Clumping Corn Litter, which is a, a natural litter, which is from highly renewable sources that is four times more absorbent than clay and therefore more um, reduces landfill significantly, but it's actually a bit of cost value equation for the customer you know, it's lighter weight, better tracking. You know, that took us a long time to um, formulate that product. And it is a brilliant product. And in fact, um, it outperforms all of the competitors' products. And that's just the criteria that we make sure that our products, you know, perform to before we, before we actually launch them. The other thing I love about that particular product is, you know, one cat produces 200 kilos or 400 pounds of waste in a year. You can consider over the, the millions of cats that we have um, across the globe, you know, that is a significant amount of landfill. Um, and, and the products that are most commonly sold, which is clay and crystal litters, are usually strip mined from the earth, destroying natural habitats. So to me, it's unconscionable that you would try and sell something and then harm, an, you know, help an animal and then harm other animals, um, albeit that they're not domestic. Um, and that product's also flushable. So, so um, we work really hard to make sure that all the ideation is, is comes from um, our, you know World HQ, which is Australia, and that and the product team that sort of sit here. But our actual suppliers are experts in their field. So we work with manufacturers out of Australia that produce all of our supplements and our grooming ranges. Um, they're actual experts in their field. Um, we work a lot with their formulators. Um, likewise, out of China and Taiwan in terms of creating specific types of products because, see, we're a brand that actually sells about 100. We work across 12 different categories and we sell 100 different types of products. So to be able to 
then own the manufacturer of that when manufacturing margins aren't significant. Um, I think it would be a distraction from what I believe is our core, which is our brand and our product ideation. Right. Uh, I definitely agree. I like the focusing on your core competency, which is that design element and more so that interface where it truly impacts the consumer versus just the manufacturing aspect of it. You hit on some of your manufacturers in Australia, China, Taiwan. Where else are your suppliers from and how do you decide? Because just out of curiosity, because I used to be in the sourcing world. So when going to a new vendor, how do you source a new a new vendor and how does that relationship start for let's say a brand new product yeah it's a really good question and it's a really important part of what we do because um so they are the only three places that we source our countries that we source our products from what we try to do is we try to get a values alignment out of our suppliers we try to we make it very clear what in entering this relationship this is how we want to deal with you and this is what we expect you know this is what we expect from you, what do you expect from us? And we get on the same page as to that. And I can't emphasize that enough because culturally um, across these countries, we've got, especially in China and Taiwan, very different values as it relates to, you know, um, honesty around where stock's at or where your production's at or if they have a quality problem. So I really emphasize the need to um, be very transparent. We split, we, we invest a lot of time in making it very clear that um, that we want to know when there are mistakes and that they're not to ship anything and that we spend time in their factories, we spend time getting to know them. Um, you know, we've had really big orders for some retailers that I've flown myself to China to eyeball before it leaves. You know, we make we honour our commitments to retailers and we're not going to risk that our reputation in delivering you know, stock that's not of the quality in which we've presented. And that's part of our success is that people can rely on us and we certainly go the extra mile. Does that mean that we don't have problems? No, <laughs> we have lots of problems. But um, but I think being really clear up front and especially with the owners of the business who often can't speak English, being very clear up front um, over what might take many days to be really understood on those points, um, I just think is paramount because once we give them our innovation, um, it often means changing their equipment to actually, um, you know, serve what we want. We want to make sure that they're not selling our product under, to someone else the minute we leave the factory and those sorts of things can happen. Um, so we put all sorts of agreements in place to um, ensure that doesn't happen. But even then, it comes down to values as to whether that doesn't happen or not. Oh, yeah. And... Uh... As far as problems and fighting fires, I think that's the name of the game with supply chain. And as far as the cultural aspect, I think that is very significant because I'm sure as you have vendors in all these different countries and are doing business globally, what one country or what one region or that individual vendor that you're dealing with can vary significantly as far as not what's on the paper contractually, but how they're actually um how they're actually transacting business in reality. So I think that is a very key point. But we're in 2020 today where you've got a pretty significant team, pretty large business. It wasn't the way in 2008. So when you first uh, were looking to source that product and or maybe even your second product and we're looking within Australia and outside of Australia, how were those interactions? Because 
I'm sure right now you've got a team that can assist with that. You have maybe boots on the ground that can fly out there. But when it was just you doing it, how are those early days like? Really tough. Um, and I think, you know, it's difficult because I know when I met some of my first manufacturers, I didn't even have a name for the brand yet. So really I was selling them a pipe dream and I was asking them for a certain price at a, at a minimum quantity that they wouldn't even bother getting out of bed for, you know, like, so it's really tough. Um, what I actually figured out quickly was that because I had had quite a successful corporate career until that point, I did leverage that. And, and I didn't really want to, but I found that when I sort of mentioned my previous roles, people would kind of go, oh, right, oh, okay, you actually might know what you're talking about. So that made a bit of a difference. And, you know, that's it's for the reason of finding people that are happy to work with you when you're that small. Now within our business, um, I'm very loyal to the suppliers that have been with us and grown with us and stayed with us, and it's required numerous um problems we've had to overcome together but quite often my sourcing team will say to me Annika we can get so many more cents out of this supplier if we just change and I'm like no that supplier was with me when we started if you can get it for a better price you need to go back to that supplier and explain why we need to work on ways together to get it to that price but you're going to give them the option first I'm not leaving them for unless there's a really good reason and you know marginal sense in it is not enough because actually what comes down to it is the people you're dealing with and those people were there when we started um, so we do the same thing with our with our Chinese suppliers and with all of our suppliers we have that same um, modus operandi that we're not switching around we're going to come back and see you we're going to work through things together to get it to the right you know price or quality or whatever it takes um, and you know I think that I think that for those that have been with us in the beginning when, you know, kind of we didn't have, all I had was a shiny idea, you know, that's paid dividends um, backing us in terms of the business. Oh yeah. hundred percent agree because you've spent, um, when you're changing that vendor, it's, it's like you exactly said, it's not for those cents. It's, uh, you're losing out on the potential foundation that you've built that relationship that you've built. Um, that understanding, that mutual understanding that you have with a certain vendor that they know exactly how yeah. your team works, your operations work, um, and what level of quality that you're looking for. So yeah, I definitely agree on, on the, as far as sourcing to another vendor. When you made that decision to expand outside of Australia, how did that opportunity come up? Was it more an opportunity that came up where somebody else was saying, hey, we want you uh, and we just happened to be outside of Australia or was it, no, we are expanding and we are going to expand outside of Australia. How did that expansion come about? It was very opportunistically. I was at an Australian trade show and um, I met a distributor, a Hong Kong distributor. So I think in my first year when I had completely no idea really about shipping and how to get the product to them, <laughs> but I opportunistically like most entrepreneurs were, entrepreneurs would, is I said, yeah, of course we can, you know, of course. Like, and then I just went, oh, I'll figure it out, you know. So they were actually my biggest customer, um, my customer in Hong Kong. And I remember they used to send me photos of the products on the shelf that, you know, I used to stick up around my, uh, my bedroom, which is actually my office at the time. Um, so we, 
it was very opportunistically how we started um, and then many, many, I think, points of distribution after that happened quite opportunistically. I mean, the good thing about having an Australian product is that it is, um, it is sought after, it's known for its quality um, around the world. The bad thing about having an Australian product is you're considered to be at the bottom of the world and too far away to actually get product 21. So there's, there's a double-edged sword in there. But certainly for Asia, it's considered to be next door. And, um, and I, I, think, I think it was probably not until we were honestly about in our fifth year of business um, that I actually sat down with all the Euromonitor reports uh, from all around the world and I actually started to map out, okay, what is the size of each of these markets? How quickly are they growing? What is the dog ownership, the cat ownership? What is the profile of products as it sits in that market? And I started to work much more strategically as to, you know, which market we were going to do next and which one we're going to do next and what the what the map was to do that. Prior to that, really, I would, you know, rock up to trade shows and, um, you know, wait for people to talk to me, but I didn't even quite understand what it was that they'd be asking me for or, um, and look, I don't think there's any um, thing wrong with doing that, I have to say. Like, I think some of my best lessons have been just being on the ground and listening and asking questions. And uh, I think I've, we've learned a great deal that way. And certainly, you know, even when you go to those trade shows, I always say that work doesn't stop, you know, when you, the trade show closes. You need to get yourself to the bar where everyone is and you need to start finding information out, you know, and uh, and I have to say it's been it's been very helpful at the time. My sales team were all, you know, blonde females and they never had any problem getting good information out of out of the rest of the market. So we we have used that, that to our competitive advantage at some point um, for sure. But, you know, like we have quite in all seriousness met uh, a lot of our partners there and, um, you know, we're well known in the industry now and, a lot of that's come down to sort of just being present. Oh yeah. I bet as far as, uh, you know, that sales approach and, um, but one thing that you had mentioned was your first distributor was from Hong Kong. Kind of curious on the logistics of that because you were, I'm not sure at that point, this, you said, um, a few years after you had started that opportunity had come up. So, uh, were some of these products actually manufactured? in China or Taiwan and then being redistributed by your Hong Kong distributor? They were actually buying the Australian made product. So the vitamins, supplements and cleaning products that we have in our range are all made in Australia and they were the products that they were buying. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Um, so right now you guys are in nine different countries. And so I know you had mentioned um, back in 2013, I, I, I would guess when you had started assessing the various other countries to expand to how does that look today as i've seen in 2020 right now i'm sure in the last six months we're in a completely different environment when you are looking for that 10th country and to slowly expand even further out how does that market analysis and market research look and what are some of the various factors that you look for today yeah it's very interesting so we we take a view of you know, market value size, um, the, 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 value, the values of the categories that we operate in. We take a view of pet ownership um, for dogs and cats, which are the primary spend. Dogs get more spend around the world than cats do typically. 
small mammals, um, you know, get more spent in Europe than in other parts of the world. So we look at the basics. And then what we do is um, we certainly look at the growth rates in that. So, you know, when you chunk it down, um, America always comes up as number one. And then what you do is you get a collection of the countries in Europe um, and then you end up with Japan. And then what comes under that and what's been just growing at the rate of knots is China and the pet ownership in China. The, the interesting thing about China is pet ownership's really new. So, and the way that they sell into the market is really different. And so this is the other angle that we look at. We're like, okay, can, how can we leverage what we've currently got? Or is it actually that we need to create a whole different approach to a market? Because we're looking at that, we're looking at the opportunity versus the ease, and something like China is low ease because certainly for us, because um, the the approach to sell and the investment in selling is really high, and it, it requires a completely unique approach. Um, they've got different regulations that make it um, more challenging, um, and they change the regulations all the time, um, and so. And so, and also the attitude, just the general attitude to pet ownership is really different. I remember going to China because we've been in and out of China twice um, and we will go in again. Um, but I remember going there for product training one time and I was talking to them very slowly in English <laughs> about the products. And I remember the guy stopping me saying, no, we need, we need to know how to wash a dog. I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, they're, they're really new pet owners and they need to know the basics that in, in Western society, um, you know, we, we, take, we take for granted because it's an, owning a pet is, we've got ancestral history of owning a pet and watching a dog you just know, you know, from when you're a little person. So we take those, the culture absolutely into account. Um, then I mentioned the regulation. I can't emphasize that enough. Certainly across all of our product set, there are different requirements. Even the litter that I mentioned earlier, we say that it's flushable because it is. It's super fantastic because it's flushable and therefore you eliminate so much household waste. However, in the state of California, um, it has to pass certain laws to be able to say flushable. Otherwise, you need to make different marks on pack and all these sorts of things. Um, otherwise, you get in trouble. So you need to understand regulation. But then lastly and importantly, I think it's about product. And what product, um, we learned this the hard way actually with America because when we first started going to America, we went, look, we're Rufus and Coco and we sell this one and this one and this one and this one. And everyone was like, what do you do? And we're like, we're Rufus and Coco. And they're like, well, well, what do you do? And then the next time we went with a narrower range and then next time we presented ourselves, I'm really talking at trade shows here, we just went, you know what? Um, and having walked all the halls and seen all the other products and visited all the customers and spoken to all the sales agents, met the distributors, we actually just kind of went, you know what? We just need to rock up with our litter. We need to just rock up with this one product it's a really simple, highly differentiated, big market in which we can sell. We just need to go with that and we need to push our other products in behind it. But um, yeah, it felt like it took us a long time to learn that. But that approach is absolutely um, paying off. Um, you know, we sell our litter now into PetSmart on Amazon. We sell it in Chewy. 
and um, a range of specialty stores uh, across the states and certainly in Canada via a distributor over there. So, um, so we take into account the product. The other thing to mention is that, okay, so we kind of go, okay, well, export's going to be litter focused. But then when you look at parts of Europe, and how much they sell their current products for. You know, in Europe today, they sell mainly clay litter. Um, and, you know, so the value proposition or the pricing proposition between clay and what we sell is, it's like four times. So really what you need to do is you need to enter with a bridge product. You can't go and start selling into the market with a product that's four times higher. So, you know, it's considering all those things, not, not just opportunistically going, but they're going to love it. I'm going anyway because unless commercially it stacks up for them and us, um, it's not even worth getting on the plane. Um, now, that said, as I've kind of emphasised enough, I think some of my best ideas have been when I've been in market and talking to somebody probably not even that I necessarily needed, you know, was on my meetings list for the day. Sometimes it's somebody else gave me a real insight that I went, oh, okay, that's really powerful. I could use that. Um, so lots of things uh, to consider. And, you know, as Jeff Smart says in his book called Who, I think um, once you decide what you, where you are going to go, I think the first question you need to ask yourself is who is going to do that job? Um, because, you know, you can't do everything by yourself and certainly who, the best person who may not be you, the best person may be a distributor, the best person may be a sales agent um, or the best person may be you. It depends on um, your different approaches to market and certainly for us, we work with distributors in some markets, we go direct to retailers in other markets, we work with sales agents in some markets and some markets we have a hybrid of all three. Um, such as North America. So, um, so you know, it just your, your way to enter, you need to consider as well in terms of what's the best way to get, you know, open these doors, especially because the retailers that we sell in, you know, usually have about an 18-month um, or at least a 12-month uh, range review period. So you can't just rock up and go, hey, Uj, come on, come and buy this really cool, you know, Uj is like, listen, Annika, my range review is not till Christmas, you know, so come see me then. So you need to be able to time your approaches. Um, otherwise, they're, they're too busy. They don't have time to talk to you. And you're actually just annoying them because it shows that, uh, I suppose, a, a lack of understanding in the way they operate. Uh, so sometimes it can take a lot of time, even though you've got the very shiny idea of doing something, it can take a very long time um, to, to get in. Wow, that's yeah, that, that's so much to consider, to be honest. Uh, so I'm, I'm sure that's such a rigorous process to look into. All right, which market do we actually expand into? You mentioned China, the various cultural aspects, which which I think is significant. Uh, something from a business standpoint that we may not always look into. You know, the cultural aspect is significant, and especially in a, a consumer product like this. Um, and you mentioned the regulations, which are significantly different from, let's say, a Chinese market to a California uh, and also within the country, state by state. And then also uh, your distribution channels on how do you actually go to market? Um, is it truly by yourself? Is it via sales agents? Is it distributors, uh, distributors actually marketing that brand for you? Use, utilizing all of these 
have you looked at, I mean, some of the countries that you had mentioned are more so developed or at least emerging markets. Have you looked at more developing or frontier markets that are, all right, maybe it's not quite yet there. Maybe that pet ownership market isn't there, but we want to be there first and, you know, be there when that market eventually does develop, or is that not the right approach? With something like this? No, absolutely. Um, South, um, South America, Eastern Europe um, are two burgeoning pet markets that uh, I think, you know, absolutely we, we, you know, try all sorts of different approaches. We went on in those markets and it hasn't been now, you know, we've got horizons of growth, if you like, and it's not in our current horizon. Um, that said, we opportunistically, so if we will go to a uh, fair, for instance, in in Germany, because there is a big fair in Germany, we will reach out to all of them and say, hey, we listen, we'd like to meet you. Some people we send partnership boxes to to introduce ourselves. It's like a soft door opening. So we'll send samples of products and presentations, that type of thing. Um, to buyers, we've even sent things like cupcakes and, you know, just trying to get attention. Um, but those markets are definitely on our list and those two countries in particular um, are of interest in, in addition to China. And I, I do want to get back into the, the regulation aspect that you had mentioned because that and the cultural aspect, those are very different region to region. So how do you as a company, as you're planning for that, is that kind of an all hands on deck, your marketing team, your design team, your legal team, and as well as your folks within that particular country uh, from a legal standpoint to say, all right, this particular product, we do X in Australia, but to be able to do the same thing, like you, you were mentioning in California to do that, uh, we would need to go through a few additional channels, a few additional paperwork, approvals, permits, licenses, et cetera. So uh, how does that aspect of it work when you're dealing with so many different states, so many different uh, countries? Well, we have very clear kind of a, a very clear strategy, if you like, and definitely all departments get involved, but at different stages. So we run like a gated um, process uh, that means that finance and operations wouldn't get involved. I mean, they may get involved by providing prices on shipping, which happens to be way up here, but they don't get involved until we actually get the order. So we try to minimize with some of these growth opportunities. The challenge is, is that we have an existing business that uh, we need our resources focused on delivering the growth out of the existing business. Uh, and then we need them to dedicate, depending on what, which gate comes up when, um, time to the new growth opportunity. So it's certainly not a case of everyone down tools, we're doing this, because um, generally most of what they're doing is in fact managing the core business and growing it. And that is critically important because the minute you take your eye off that or don't dedicate energy to that, it stops growing, uh, not surprisingly. So it's really just getting clear on, you know, what needs to be done when and usually we run about four gates from you know assessment to initial financials to you know first approaches we sort of run this gated process um, where you know people go about doing their part of it um, but certainly the initial investigation and just taking the time to get the strategy right and get all the information that we need uh, we have lots of questions that we have listed that we ask ourselves 
because I think, you know, I have learned the hard way by, I think, running at an opportunity going, yeah, we'll do it. We'll figure it out as we go. And then you realise that you've lost focus and time and potentially a bit of money on it, um, that if you had have stopped, really critically assessed it from the outset, um, you know, we, we never would have run at it. Um, so we make a real point of getting the commercials down to, to make sure that, you know, selling product at a certain price in a market with certain costs of product, certain costs of logistics, certain, you know, business costs, it's a profitable, it would be a profitable enterprise when we scaled up to X percent of market or went into so many doors and we do spend a lot of time on the numbers um, before we, we make any moves. One thing you were talking about before was your your team. You've got a couple of team members out in the US. So your team, I'm sure, is a significant part of your company, your team, your your life as well. And so I'm curious, who was your first hire and how did you make that hiring decision? And when you do look to hire your, your executive team and um, especially going into a brand new market, uh, what is your hiring approach? Yeah, I love my team. I call them unicorns. You know, they're not your average people. Um, and finding unicorns is like finding needles in haystacks. Very difficult. Um, and then, you know, so, but I think find you need to find people that share your same vision and values, um, share the entrepreneurial spirit that makes us as a business very difficult against what is, the Goliaths of the world, which are our competitors, you know, we're we're like David, they're like Goliath, because we we deal across, we we operate against the largest multinationals in the world, and so you know what makes us different is that for buyers we can be dynamic and responsive, um, and and so I look for people that very much have entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I like people that have worked in small business or people that have actually tried to create their own business, as is the case with many of my employees, have actually, you know, maybe created their own business and decided that that it's not what they want to continue to do, but they have a real passion for animals and they believe in what we're doing and they understand that in working for a business like us, you get to you get to try things your way and, you know, we don't have... Whilst we do have good process around what we do, we also are very happy to try different ways and new approaches. And if you've got a better idea than we have, then let's try that one. So, you know, people really get to bring their best ideas to work and I think work authentically. Um, I, I, in terms of recruiting for people, you know, we've done it all different types of um, ways. I mean, I mentioned that book actually by Jeff Smart called Who?, and I do think that's a really great book because it talks about um, the process in hiring people, which you know usually starts with a phone interview, followed by a first interview, followed by or phone interview, um, then then the person answers a lot of questions, and then they come for a first interview, then they have a peer interview. <laughs> um, so we we always I always think the test is they have to be able to pass the airline test, you know, airport test rather. So would I be able to sit down with this person in the airport on a layover for six hours and feel like they were sort of one of the team? And, you know, it's simple, but I've employed people in this business. I've made a lot of mistakes in hiring because I don't think it is an exact science, unfortunately. And I don't think I've got, you know, the, the, the key or just do this one thing. You know, I've tried all different things. And I definitely think we have gotten a, a lot better at it through really mindful process. 
Um, but I just, I'll never forget, we had one team member, she was heading up sales and we had to go across to a trade show in the States together and I booked our flights. And, and I said to her, well, you know, you're sitting next to me and I booked the exit row because I'm almost six foot tall. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to squeeze me into um, a normal seat. So she, she said to me, am I sitting next to you? And I said, yeah. Uh, you're sitting and I was like wow like I have somebody here that's not even I mean I don't sit there talking the whole time about business I have usually I'm watching a movie and typing emails and reading a book at the same time that's usually what I'm doing but you know like I'm not sitting there going oh and by the way what's your strategy on you know like we might have a conversation at the lounge beforehand but I just kind of went well you're just not really on the bus like if you can't sit with us or sit with me in that particular instance and just be part of, you know, then, I don't know, it just felt like you were sort of like an outsider. And so I think interestingly, COVID was a really interesting time, you know, because I think it really um, showed, sh shone a light on the people that kind of probably weren't quite on the bus because we had to make some adjustments at the time, you know, people had to work from home. Um, we made adjustments initially to working hours and that type of thing. We were doing it so that, by the time we, we weren't sure what was going to happen, but I was doing it to make sure that by the time, you know, we could see the light of COVID and we actually understood this thing, we would all be here with a job. You know, I was doing it to make sure all the people were still on the bus by the time we got off. But, you know, the level of sort of self-interest and um, the kind of the lack of team spirit um, out of a couple of members just meant that um, it was just really evident that they weren't really a Rufus and Cocoa. And so, um, you know, honestly, I don't want those people on the bus because we're as strong as our weakest link and what everyone thinks and feels every day makes a difference to how everyone thinks and feels. And um, so, I, you know, I think that's really important. Um, so I think really mindful interviewing as well. I always say don't sit down to interview someone without getting clear on the key questions. You need to, there's skills alignment and then there's values alignment. And we actually have several values in the business, passionate, aspirational, trusted and dynamic. And we've got a range of questions around them um, and some weird ones about spaceships and all sorts of things that get people to kind of throw people off, you know, kind of get them to really give a real answer because it's not something you can pre-prepare for. So we really test people's value alignment as well to, um, to try to make sure that we're getting another unicorn and not a horse with a, with a cone stuck to its head. I love that, yeah. Um, as far as that six hour rule or the layover rule, I'm definitely going to steal that because I a hundred percent agree that you really, I mean, you, you are stuck with your team, not stuck. I mean, it shouldn't feel like you're stuck. You're, you're with your team for so much out of your, your daily life that, uh, you should want to be able to interact and, um, outside of just business as well. So I'm definitely going to take that. And, um, and then also on hiring people with that entrepreneurial mindset. When I used to work my job, mm -hmm. that's that's how I was always geared. So I love that approach too, and building out your team in such a way. Um, and over the, all these twelve years uh, post Rufus and Coco, I'm sure you've accrued so much. I mean, it just it, it exudes just from this conversation. I, I can feel it. How are you interested in other businesses as well? I already think I know the answer because you had mentioned you wanted to focus um, in within your passion. So um, 
if you are not, are there other ways that you are still uh, getting involved into other startups, other ideas? Because I'm sure over these years, uh, just like you wrote down on that napkin in 2008, I'm sure you've got so many other ideas brewing. So how are you kind of uh, satiating that appetite to get out into the market and um, work on maybe other ideas or push some of these other ideas? Yeah, I, um, it's funny because we, we, um, we're following as a team a new process called the EOS process, the Enterprise Operating System. And basically um, part of that, uh, we've, got an, we've got a coach that runs alongside that runs alongside us and part of the exercise in that is to define actually what everybody does in the business from a really functional simplistic way and and my job is to be the visionary in the business and, and to come up with 20 ideas a day or 20 ideas it's like kind of kind of so the team are like rolling their eyes going oh my god can we just stop her at like 20 ideas that'd be really good <laughs> so i'm constantly aware of the fact that i am full of ideas and uh, whilst that's really helpful um, it can also be really counterproductive because once you put down a plan and once you put down a budget and you know there's a lot of core that just needs to get done better every year and um so so I am very mindful of my idea sharing. Uh, that said, yes, I wake up with 20 ideas. And um, so I really have to take a hard look at, you know, which ones are worth verbalising and which ones I need to park until we have the opportunity to talk about shiny objects. Um, you know, one of the things I started last year was the first salon. And the first salon is a premium uh, salon like a, like a, like your most premium um, human hair salon, which operates in a in Mossman, which is where we're based, which is a very upmarket area. So when you're coming to the first salon, you're getting style cuts for your poodle that are unsurpassed anywhere in Australia um, from, from some fabulous groomers that we have down there, uh, along with a lot of range of other services and things that we do in that space. And um, that was an idea that I, I had, um, when I was in Palm Springs, actually at a at a conference, and and you know about six months later we were we'd built out the space and I'd launched it, and it's called the first salon and it is um, super cool. So certainly I can see room for more of those services around Australia, uh, and and other parts of the world. You know, mm -hmm. people humanising their pets is is the trend that's here to stay. You know, due to COVID, we've seen unprecedented rises in pet ownership that in our lifetime, which we'll never see again. You know, people have kind of come inward and they're looking at their family because they're the only people they can interact with if they can actually get outside to interact with their family. And they're like going, okay, well, you know, it might be my husband, wife, partner, could be my children and there's my pet. Um and, you know, so I think the level of spending that we've seen on people's pets and the care has, um, has you know, stepped up significantly and not surprisingly because people aren't spending it on, you know, um, other types of entertainment um, and being at large and even travelling and that sort of thing. Um, so, and I do have a range of other ideas and look, they are all within the set because for many years ago, I had other ideas that were outside of PET. But I think over the years, I've gotten very clear that my vision is, or my mission is about improving humanity one pet at a time. 
You know, I truly believe that pets are good for our physical and our psychological well-being. It's been proven in all the data. In Australia alone, um, pets save the Australian economy $4.62 billion a year because they help our physical and our mental well-being. So, you know, giving people cool pet products that are like what they buy for themselves is one way in which we do that servicing their animals with um, style cuts like they buy for themselves, um, you know, given that we're our customer of discerning pet mums, you know, that's another way we do that. But I tell you, I can think of 30 ways we can do that. And um, they're all kind of on the vision chart for um, realisation. We have some in incubator now. Yeah, I think uh, what you had touched on before, EOS is an amazing system. And um, also, I don't do quite 20 a day, but um, I, I do do 10 ideas on a random subject every single day just to kind of get the brain flowing. So uh, I definitely think that works a lot of wonders. Um, and to wrap up, one last question I wanted to... Sorry, feel free to share your pet Sorry? ones with me. <laughs> oh, definitely will do. Will do. Got to dig them up. Um, before we wrap up, I got one last question, which you have to answer is dogs or cats? Honestly, I love both. And in fact, I wouldn't just stop there. I mean, I mentioned I had 50 animals. Um, yeah, I can't choose. Sorry. My answer is I can't choose or don't make me. I don't know. I guess that's the right answer from someone that is so passionate with what you're doing. So I, I think that uh, comes full circle and exactly why you had started Rufus and Coco back in uh, back when it was just an inception in Bali. So thank you, Annika, again so much uh, for walking us through kind of your past, how you had started Rufus and Coco, and um, also all the amazing ideas that I'm excited to see come to fruition in the coming years as well. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do leave us a review if you feel so inclined. Or if you already have, please share with a friend that you think might enjoy the show.